The book of Acts. I'm so excited about this. We're calling this series The Living Church, and uh, we'll get to that just in a little bit why it's called The Living Church. Uh, But before we get into uh, the book of Acts too deeply, and before we begin to look at all that there is to study in the book of Acts, we want to first set the scene as we do when we come to all books of Scripture. We first want to kind of come at it with a bit of an overview. We want to understand who's writing, why are they writing, what, are, what is the purpose in the writing, what is the structure, and, and how will it be used in our lives today. And so as we come to the book of Acts this morning, we we're, we're going to do a little bit of an overview. I'm going to fly over and kind of survey uh, the book as a whole, not too deeply and uh, And not too broadly, but just enough to give us a bit of an understanding coming into what we're hoping to see in the book in uh, the coming weeks. Now, as we look at the book of Acts, when you read it, it reads as a pretty solid, straightforward narrative. It's just an easy story to understand, and it's quite interesting at many levels. One of the reasons for this is because it is a book of history. It's recording the history of the church, and we'll talk about that in a little, uh, a little bit more deeply in a moment. But one of the other things that we don't want to miss, and that it's easy to miss when we come to things like history, are the implications of that history. What is it uh, that, why is it historical, and why is it useful? Well, the book of Acts is a book that is not just historical, but it's theological. So many of the things that we do in the church and a part of the church today are because of uh, principles, patterns that have been brought about specifically through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. There are a lot of practices that uh, we can learn from, things that we can glean as we come through this text. We'll look at some of those key themes uh, in just a bit, but as, as we consider the book of Acts, we don't want to just come at it purely uh, as a book of history. We don't want to come at it as an encyclopedia, but we also want to understand that it is a theological book for us. Now, one of the things that we also don't want to overlook is that when you talk about theology, there is an importance in knowing and understanding good and correct theology, but that theology is absolutely irrelevant if you don't do anything with it. James tells us that we ought not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so we want to have good sound doctrine, we want to have good sound theology, but we also want to have good sound practice. We want to put what we have learned and understood, the theological implications of the book of Acts, into practice. If, if we do not do that, if we say that we have right theology, but we don't have right practice, Scripture says that we don't really know God. And this was the case for the Pharisees. They had the right understanding of uh, so many of the Scriptures, and they were trying to obey the law and do the right thing. But yet, Jesus said that their hearts were far from him, that they were whitewashed, that, uh, you know, that they were uh, nice-looking on the outside, but inside, inwardly, their hearts were full of dead men's bones. They were, they were just these empty graves. Death was inside of them. 
And so it's not enough for us to just come at the book of Acts understanding uh, it from a practical, or not a practical, not coming from a Coming, uh, coming at it from a historical perspective and not just from a theological perspective, but we also want to put it into practice. And when we put it into practice, when we put doctrine and practice together, when you marry those two things together, that results in worship. And so that's what we want to see. We want to see our theology, our doctrine married with praxis, our practice of that uh, doctrine, and we want it to result in worship, doxology. Anything that does not result in worship, if it doesn't end in doxology, it do, if it doesn't end in giving God glory and building your relationship with Him in an intimate manner, it's uh, it's worthless. And it's it, Scripture tells us it's really idolatry. You're getting knowledge for the sake of getting knowledge. You're getting knowledge for uh, for the for uh, self importance. And so the book of Acts, we want to come and learn in all humility, hear what the Lord wants to speak to us. Different scholars have have dated the book of Acts in uh, kind of a semi-broad range, uh, but the majority of the scholars tend to agree that it is dated uh, in A.D. 62 to 64, somewhere in that range. And then there's like another camp that kind of has like a a mid-70s approach, either the result of that is not really like super impactful either way. Uh, there's just some some discussion about the date, but most uh, most scholars will kind of come down within the 62 to 64 A.D. range. The Book of Acts. We want to find out who the author is and and what is the approach for that. The author of the Book of Acts is Luke. Luke. Now Luke was not one of the disciples. You know, he, he doesn't, he's not part of the original 12 who Jesus hand selects. But we get a little bit more insight about who Luke was uh, when we uh, consider some of the places that he's come up in Scripture. One such place in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Luke here, he notes, uh, or Paul notes that Luke is with him on this mission, uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys. And that Luke, we're told in Colossians 4.14, that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. And so, like all doctors, he had to have a pretty uh, high education. He had to be um, well-schooled. Luke's native language was Hellenistic Greek. And so, he uh, had higher learning. And Luke approached these things. Uh, He approached his writing and he approached his communication and the way that he observed things as a doctor, which is helpful for us to know. Luke, the physician, is observing things thoroughly. He's not coming at it as someone who's half-hearted. He's not coming at it uh, with indifference, but physicians are known to be very thorough and detailed. They are looking for anomalies. They're looking for things that would uh, would be... Uh, would trick them into making an incorrect diagnosis. And so Luke considers the story of Christ looking for all of these things. Now, because Luke was not uh, one of the disciples, he had to have sources for his writings. One of the sources that we find for uh, his gospel, because he wrote the gospel of Luke, uh, is Mark, 
who was one of the disciples. And so he was buddy-buddy with Mark. He got a lot of his source material for his gospel from Mark, spending time with Mark. In Luke chapter 1, verse 2, we get a little bit of insight into his relationships and how he wrote. If you look at Luke's gospel in, uh, in that first chapter, in the second verse, he said, he heard from those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses. He did a lot of interviews. He spent time and he went with those who are ministers of the word who have delivered them to us. So, so Luke's, he has strong source material. He talked to the eyewitnesses specifically. Now, one of the other sources is Paul. We're, we find that in Colossians 4, Paul says that, hey, Luke's with me and he's been a great help to me. He's the physician. He's there observing. So he gets to hear from Paul directly. But then in the book of Acts, his sources are uh, Paul, the disciples, and even uh, he gets incorporated into the story at some point. He wasn't there with Jesus originally himself, but he was, uh, lived in the time of Jesus. He was friends with the disciples and was a part of their crew. He was close with Paul. But when it came to the book of Acts, the, the chapters that we're going to read, Luke was there for a lot of it. So he himself was an eyewitness for portions of this, especially when we get to uh, start to talk about Paul's four missionary journeys that are recorded there. Luke was there observing these things. Now, why did Luke write the gospel, or why did he write Acts? What is his purpose in writing? Well, in order to understand Luke's purpose in writing Acts, we first have to look at uh, his gospel. So if you flip over to Luke chapter 1, we'll see how Luke starts these things off. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice is that Luke starts off both, both the gospel that he wrote and the book of Acts in a very similar way. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what Luke is doing here, when he writes the book of Acts, he's connecting it, he's purposefully connecting it to the book of Luke, his, his gospel. And so what he says there in the gospel of Luke is that he's setting out to compile an accurate uh, an account, an accurate account, an accurate timeline of what happened. And what does he say there? I have followed these things closely for some time. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've talked to those who were there from the beginning. I've interviewed everybody. And I've done this for some time. And he says that I've done this specifically for the purpose of giving an orderly account of putting these things together for this guy Theophilus 
In verse 4, we read that you may have certainty. He wants Theophilus, he wants his readers to have certainty. He wants them to stand on solid ground with conviction about the things that you have been taught. He's saying this is the most accurate, the most complete version of this. And so you can believe the things that you've taught because we've talked to the eyewitnesses. I have gone and done and interviewed them. Paul likewise makes a similar statement in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he makes this proclamation of the gospel of all uh, that Jesus had done in his death and his resurrection. And he says, I was there, I witnessed it. And you, and you can go and confirm the resurrection of Christ and all that he has done with some of the eyewitnesses who are even alive now. So if people wanted to come with doubts, if they wanted to say, no, what you're writing is not true, Paul said, well, here they are. Go, go and talk to them. They're still alive. You can go and you can refute my story. They're all there. Go for it. And so Luke has put in great effort to put together an orderly account for those who would hear this. Now, he says one of the reasons that he wants to do this is for this person, Theophilus. So who, who, who is Theophilus? Uh, we got, we got to kind of look into that a little bit. Now, Theophilus, the name simply means a friend of God, or, or it could mean loved by God. Either way, you love your friends. friends are, and so this guy, Theophilus, he has this name, loved by God or friend of God. And so it would seem that we would, we would come to it thinking like, oh, okay, Theophilus, this guy, you know, loved by God, pretty easy to understand. But uh, really, this was a super ordinary Greek name. So this, you know, this would have been like, oh, this guy's name is like Michael. Yeah, find him. Great. It's just like, or his name's like John. Just, there's like a million of those. So like, we're not really exactly sure who this guy is, um, but we know what his name means. And we know a little bit more through Luke's uh, addressing of him. In Luke's gospel, he is called most excellent Theophilus, right? So this is uh, a way that Luke addresses this man, and it's a title that's given to him. And so some scholars believe that he could have been this person of uh, some, uh, some higher rank, perhaps in the Roman government. He could have been somebody who had uh, great stature, and so you had to kind of address him with some level of respect. It wasn't just a, uh, you know, a buddy that uh, you hung out with super infrequently. This was like somebody who you were delivering a specific account to, and he wanted to bring this level of credibility to his address for uh, Theophilus. Now, whatever the status uh, regarding Theophilus, the thing that we don't need clarification about, the thing that is absolutely clear, is that Luke believed that Theophilus needed clarification. He needed assurance about the things that he had been taught. And so Luke comes to write this account for the purpose of informing Theophilus, giving him more information. Theophilus has some level of understanding regarding Christianity, regarding uh, Jesus, and maybe is even a member of the Christian community, and Luke is trying to bring assurance to him. We don't know, but, but Luke wants him to go deeper. He wants him to have an understanding. 
some scholars believe that Theophilus was potentially uh, a member of the higher educated Roman middle class and that, and that Luke was wanting to win him over so that he might have influence. If Theophilus got to know Christ more, if he got more involved in the church, then uh, the gospel would have uh, the ability to spread more easily through Theophilus's influence. And so by influencing Theophilus, Luke is potentially here hoping to get the material that he's writing in the hands of many more people. Now, this is addressed to Theophilus, but through this writing, Luke is intending his readers, and not just Theophilus, to come into a relationship with this material that he's writing. There are people in the world who are needing this same information that Theophilus needs. They need to hear that the story of the gospel is true and that there are eyewitnesses who testify to this account. They need to see the vibrancy of the gospel. And so this is what Luke compiles for Theophilus in his gospel. Now we turn our attention to the book of Acts, and here's what he writes in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So when Luke opens the book of Acts with the words, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's connecting this new piece of work, the book of Acts, to his first book, the Gospel of Luke. He's saying that these things, there's, there's a continuing piece. It's, and it's not just a to-be-continued, but like this is like the sequel. Here's like more that you need to watch, that you need to understand. You need to see this unfold before your eyes through the uh, capturing of this story. And so he tells them, I've recorded in my first book all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke starts off the book of Acts with this editorial note. He says, hey, if you didn't read, uh, if you didn't read the first book, you should maybe go back and read that book. Because that has to do with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Everything there is contained in that first book. Until the day when he was taken up, until the ascension of Christ, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what Luke is doing here is he's saying uh, that though the gospel of Luke, it ends with the ascension of Jesus. He, Jesus gives commands to his disciples and like all of a sudden Jesus is ascending. But he, Luke opens the book of Acts with this and what he's saying to his readers is the story is not over so don't check out the story is not done keep paying attention that was just what jesus began to do the first book was just what jesus began to do. it was just the beginning of what he wanted to do and teach until he ascended 
And so when he writes here in Acts chapter 1, Luke is telling us that the book of Acts will take us through what Jesus continued to do. And what he continued to teach, we read there in verse 2, through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles whom he had chosen after his ascension. So the book of Acts is going to be about Jesus continuing his work through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, what Luke is doing here is he's making a specific point. Jesus is alive and he's working in his people and through his people through the Holy Spirit. And so the book of Acts is about life and the continuation of Jesus's ministry. Now, as we look at the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit leading the disciples, filling disciples, empowering the disciples to accomplish all that Jesus intends to do in his church and all that he intends to influence for the sake of the gospel. I'm super excited about the book of Acts. It's going to be like amazing when we come and and look at it. I'm going to give you one kind of uh, theme verse that's going to give us the structure. So if you you want to kind of jot down in your minds or you want to put this in your notes, um, how how to kind of understand and look at the book of Acts. The the kind of the guide for the structure of the book is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here are the words of Jesus as given to his disciples. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. If we wanted to, to use that, that will give you the guide and structure for like the entire book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the first thing that needs to happen is they need to receive power. They need the Holy Spirit. The second thing that's going to happen, they're going to be witnesses And then we get geographic locations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You see what's happening here? It's starting inwardly, and it's going to move outward. It starts inwardly, and it's going to move outward. They are going to be witnesses to the life and work of Jesus and the continuing ministry of Jesus. They themselves are going to do this. Not on their own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it starts with the individual. Right? This is, this is important for us to understand because some of us have the, are of the mentality that like people need help, so we need to help people. But this is the whole purpose that like when you're flying on the airplane and they're doing the safety check, they tell you like put your mask on first if those things deploy uh, before you help other people. If you can't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help other people. So we need to, as God's people, deal with our own personal uh, salvation. We need to deal with our own personal sanctification before we go 
go out trying to help other people, before we go out trying to be witnesses. You're not going to be a very good witness of what it means to be someone changed and transformed through the power of God if you yourself hasn't been changed and transformed through the power of God. God doesn't need your help to do that, as we see in Acts 9. Paul's a, or, you know, Paul's a huge jerk. He's solved the time. He's like killing people. And God just shows up and like kicks him off his like donkey. And he's like, yo, like you need to like quit that. So like he doesn't need help from us to do that. He can deal with like the most difficult person. So we're not like that valuable to the Lord in that sense. He wants to deal with us personally to know and enjoy him. But we need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. So we need to start inwardly. The gospel needs to change us and transform us before we go out. So here's the structure of the book. In chapters 1 through 7, it's the church in Jerusalem, right? Jesus said, receive power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem first. Chapters 1 through 7 are dealing with the church in Jerusalem. They receive the promise of the Holy Spirit there. We uh, see uh, the Lord ascend We have the day of Pentecost recorded, the birth of the church, all in chapters 1 through 7. And then as the church begins, as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, we begin to see some miracles that take place. There's healing of uh, a lame man. Peter makes these great speeches throughout the first seven chapters of uh, proclaiming the gospel. And then that first section in Jerusalem ends with the persecution of the church, but then the explosion of growth that that persecution brings. We see the gospel preached again by Stephen, the first martyr. And then from there, the church is growing and it begins to move outward a little bit more into Judea and Samaria. We see this in chapters 8 and 9. As the church begins to move outward. We see an interaction with uh, the ministry of Philip in Samaria. And then Philip has this really uh, fun encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch. And like all of a sudden, Philip gets like super speed and he can run like as fast as a chariot. You know, and then like he's like giving like this theological lesson. It's amazing. Uh, and then in chapter 9, we come to the conversion of Saul into Paul. And then in chapter 9, the church goes from Judea and Samaria outward even further to the ends of the earth. Peter begins this uh, bit of preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Churches are planted uh, in Antioch. There is great persecution that comes again, and then we follow Uh, Paul's first, second, third, and uh, missionary journeys, his arrest, and ultimately ending with Paul's voyage to Rome, shipwreck. It just gets like crazy. Paul's like under house arrest, and then he's like witnessing to the Jews, writing Romans. It's like amazing. The structure mirrors Jesus' command to the disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, in all Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 and 9, and to the end of the earth, chapters 9 through 28. It expands outward like a target. 
Now, one of the things I want to point out to you that will be helpful to you, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, first 12 chapters, the apostle Peter is a major character, right? So we're going to be tracking Peter around as we look at in the disciples, but we're going to be talking about Peter. He's a major character in bringing the gospel to the Jews. And this is a bit ironic because, like, Peter uh, is not super high educated. He is a fisherman, but yet he's going to be, like, out instructing uh, his people, and he's like this blue-collar worker out there, and, and the Lord just gives him favor through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter 13... Until the end of the book, it kind of pivots a bit. And then we see that Paul becomes the major character in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So both the Jews and the Gentiles are reached. The nation of Israel and the nations at large receive the gospel. So those are some of the major characters. Now, this was recorded for us, for Theophilus, to show the continuing ministry of Christ. This was all recorded so we could see that this is a continuing ministry. Because what Luke wants Theophilus to understand, and he wants what you and I to understand, is that this is a history that belongs to us. It's a community history. This isn't just something that happened a long time ago. It is, it is important to us because it is the history of our faith, the history of our church. And the reason that we are here this morning in a church that was planted was because the work of the Holy Spirit the obedience of God's people to follow him, to spread the gospel. And so because they planted churches, today we planted this church to come here in obedience to the Lord. This is our community history. And he wants Theophilus, and he wants us to see this early account of faith and the vibrancy of this new community. Now, I also want you guys to understand this. When we talk about the early church, when we think about like, oh man, like back in those days, like it was just probably like everything was like amazing and like the early church was awesome. They just did like everything perfect. This is not the case, okay? Sometimes we can kind of uh, put the early church up on like this pedestal and we're like, man, they just did everything so right. Like, there are definitely some things that they did right and were in obedience to the Lord, and there's some amazing miracles. But as you see, when we come to this, the, the early church is a mess. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, like, he's got to like, deal with this guy who's like, sleeping with like, uh, his mother and like, all this crazy stuff, like sexual sin that the Corinthian church is in, and they're like, bragging about it. So like, they're a super mess there. In the book of Acts, we see that um, in Galatians, we see that a part of the missionary journey Paul's showing partiality to, uh, or Peter's showing partiality, who's like leading the church, the guy who the Lord's primarily used when he goes to, to visit with 
the Gentiles, he like takes on all their customs and he's like chilling with them. But as soon as Jews come in, he's like, oh, I don't know those guys. So not only is there like this favoritism and partiality, there's like this huge racial reconciliation issue that exists in the early church. We're, the same things that the church has dealt with historically through all time are the same things that we're dealing with. Okay, so we don't want to come at this with the understanding that like, oh, the early church is perfect. We will deal with things in chapter two, chapter four, with things like racial reconciliation and how the Holy Spirit worked there and how we ought to respond as God's people today. We deal with, uh, with church discipline and some of the stuff that we will handle as we talk about the book of Acts. There's all sorts of things that the early church was a mess with. So we want to be real about that. So, and we want to learn. So, but we also want to take away the vibrancy and the faith of this new community. <clears throat> now, verse 3. Verse 3. He presented himself, here's Christ, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. As we look at the book of Acts, we have a couple things that are brought to the forefront here that Luke records for us. The first thing here is that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering. What, what Luke is telling us here is that this is the continuing story. In Luke's gospel, when he writes in, in his gospel, he only records three appearances of Jesus before like it ends, it's before it cuts off. It's like Jesus was here, he had this interaction with these guys on the road to Emmaus, he popped up here and they saw him, and it's just really sparse with details in the end of the book of Luke. But in Acts, Luke is careful to indicate the risen Christ appeared to many people over a period of 40 days. He was there. He made himself available. He, sh uh, he, was, he was showing his wounds to people. We see that uh, in Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw him at one time. There was a, a moment where uh, just a massive amount of people saw Jesus and spent time with him. There were many eyewitnesses. And so what what uh, Luke wants us to understand here in verse 3 is that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord over all. His rule and reign extends to all things. And what he's saying here is that Jesus even defeated death. He is even Lord over death. Death could not hold him. The grave has been conquered and Jesus even rules over death. And so in the book of Acts, we see Jesus as sovereign over everything that happens. And he's furthering his will, his purpose in the world through his people with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is the head of the church. In verse 3, we see that he appeared to them during 40 days. And what did he do? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. What Jesus does after his resurrection 
is nothing different than what he did before his resurrection. He continues to proclaim the same message that he brought at the beginning of his ministry. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, that Jesus came on the scene, the very first thing that he did, and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. His message was about bringing the kingdom of God to, uh, to earth. And so Jesus continues to talk about the kingdom of God. Now, the terminology that Jesus spoke about meant something specific. It meant something unique. In the Jewish mind, the, the terminology, the kingdom of God, was associated with Israel's hope for an ultimate and final manifestation of God's rule in human history. And they were hoping for God to come and rule and reign and conquer all the nations with the sword. But Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom through his death, facing the sword of divine justice that we would have faced to conquer sin and death. And so Jesus has already defeated death. He's already Lord over all. And so we are living in a time where the kingdom is here, it's, it's brought about, it's kind of like in this already not yet. You have the promises, there's the partial uh, kingdom that's here, but yet you know that like the fullness of it will come when Jesus rules and reigns. But we participate in the kingdom of God when we submit to him as our Lord, and recognize that he is our head. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says that Jesus is the head of the body, that is, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or that he might be made first. He is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. Luke wants us to understand that the church is continuing, the work of Christ is continuing, but Jesus is still in charge. He is the one who is the head of the church. And we need Jesus to be the head of the church because, frankly, when men get in charge of the church, we just blow it. We just like do dumb stuff and bad things happen. We need Jesus to be the head of the church. We need to understand what he's doing. We want to join him in, in what he's doing. I don't want to come up with my good ideas. They're not good. They just end in failure. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. That's the most important thing. We don't want to have mission drift. We don't want to get distracted with weird stuff or like pet projects or things that we really feel passionate about, but God doesn't care about at all. Those are not the things that we want to be a part of. We want to see what God's doing. We want to open our eyes to understand what he's doing. We want to be a part of that. We want to be faithful to do that. Christ presented himself alive. He appeared during his 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And then after that, he ascended to be with the Father. We'll talk about this uh, 
in, in probably next week. But before he ascended, what he did was he promised his disciples a helper. He said that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So although Jesus is the head of the church, the Holy Spirit is working in God's people currently. Now earlier I noted uh, in the first half of the book that Peter is the major character. And in the second half of the book, Paul is the major character. But they're the major character, but they're not the main character. The main character in the book of Acts, the most important figure and, and person in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The main character is the Holy Spirit. Peter, Paul, fine. But without the Holy Spirit, it's just like a fisherman and the super self-righteous guy who kills people. Without the Holy Spirit, these guys are nothing. The Holy Spirit is, a, is the main character in the book of Acts. One of the things as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to study the Holy Spirit. But, but and, and oftentimes it's hard for us to kind of like wrap our minds around the Holy Spirit because we just think of like maybe sometimes the Holy Spirit is like a superpower. But I want you to understand, if you're going to understand anything, understand this. The Holy Spirit is God, like the third person of the Trinity. So it's not like, oh, like there's God who's got like these amazing powers and created all things and Jesus who died for our sins. And then kind of like the Holy Spirit is kind of like secret sauce. It's like, eh, it could do with or without him. It's not the case. The Holy Spirit is God. And so we don't want to underemphasize the Holy Spirit. It's like underemphasizing Jesus or God, you know, the Father. The Holy Spirit, we're, I'm excited because we'll understand and learn more about the Holy Spirit. It's going to be amazing. Now, the Holy Spirit equips God's people and empowers them to do his work. This is how the book of Acts happens. Without the Holy Spirit, just a bunch of idiots running around. But with the Holy Spirit, unequipped, under-equipped, unqualified men do amazing things. The Holy Spirit equips God's people and he empowers them to do his work. Now he does this through the church. Christ died to bring about a new people. This people is called the church. We read about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As a people who have been purchased by God, who have been bought by God, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we belong to him, a people for his own possession, not for our own. So this means that when you become a Christian, when you come into the family of God, you are a part of the church. This is why there's no such thing as like the Lone Ranger Christian. You can't be like, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I'm not a part of the church. Like that doesn't exist according to scripture. You're just not a part of the body of Christ. You need to be a part of the community of Christ 
in order to be a Christian. God's people operate according to God's rules within his house, within his family. And so Christ died to bring about this new people, the church. And it's not a church that is dead, but is living. This is why we're calling this series The Living Church, because the Holy Spirit is ministering in his church uh, and directing us, empowering us as God's people. Christ, who is alive, is the head of his church, and we, as his people, are a living vessel for his glory. And so we are equipped through the Holy Spirit to go out and serve and love and do things that we would not be able to do on our own. It's all brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit. We are a living church because our God is alive, and we've been made alive ourselves. Once we were dead in our trespasses, but Christ has made us alive. Like, isn't that mind-blowing that the story of the church is all about resurrection? It's about dead people coming to life. We were dead in our trespasses, our sins, and we take what he has given us and we live for his glory. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So the job of the church is worship. That's, that's our main, main job. We worship. Now the method, the manifestation in which we worship can come down to the decisions that we make. It's not just like, you know, we have a band and we just like sing the entire time. That's not what it's talking about. We worship. We are a worshiping people. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. This isn't the last uh, kind of key theme that we'll see in the book of Acts, but it's the last one I'm going to tell you about today. Through the church, we see the Holy Spirit leading God's people into witness and mission. Through the book of Acts, we see the end game of the nations meeting Jesus played out before our eyes. We see this happen. What he said would happen all the way back in Exodus when he was bringing the plagues that his fame might be made known and that the nations might hear of his glory and his fame. We see it come to fruition in the book of Acts. First at the day of Pentecost, but then as the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. And in fact, we see this today, as I was saying we are a part of the church. We are the continuation of what began so long ago. We see the faithfulness of God's work. We see the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the obedience of God's people on display just in the very fact that we are in this room. It's like crazy. The fact that we are here is because people believed what Jesus said and they did it. This is the whole reason we're here. Without that, none of us would even be here. We see witness and vision, or not vision, mission in the book of Acts. Joining God on his mission to make disciples of all nations, 
Not converts, disciples. Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or like in our short phrasing, like we want people to meet Jesus. Look, that's it. We want people to meet him. We want, him to, we want people to know Jesus. We want people to enjoy Jesus. Meet, know, and enjoy Jesus. That's, like, that's all we're about. That's all we want. Jesus is amazing. So amazing. I think as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to... I hope that as we see the work that God has done, I, I, I really hope that it just sparks us, just like, just has this little, the little flames that we have that are burning for Christ. I hope they just get like crazy hot and we're just burning so brightly as we look at the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we're empowered by the Lord to obey him. So let's pray, and uh, I'm excited for next week as we hop into this. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us and that you've given us this recording of history, not just so we can have an account of what happened, but also so that we can understand who you are. But ultimately, Lord, we want to take our knowledge and understanding of who you are, and we want to see it transformed into worship. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would speak to us, give us understanding. Lord, we need your help. Make our hearts soft, able to receive from you. And Lord, we want to respond in worship now. Lord, not just as, uh, not just coming here, Lord, to hear your word, to feel like, you know, that's real helpful. This isn't an academic pursuit, but we have access to the living God. We want to know you when we want to enjoy you. And Lord, we want to worship you now. And so, Lord, draw us out from our complacency, draw us out from our pridefulness. Draw us out from our resistance. And lead us, Lord, to proclaim your excellencies this morning. We need your help, Lord. Transform us by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.